0: Okay, we're live. Donald Robertson, welcome to Book Club with Caden Kelly. How are you? I'm very well, thanks very much. Pleasure to be here. I'm looking forward to our conversation. As am I, as am I. All right, Donald, you are the author of several books, um, one of which I'm most familiar with is How to Think Like a Roman Emperor, and uh, I loved it. It was awesome. I know you have a new book called, uh, maybe you'd like to introduce your new book, um, because I'm forgetting the title.
1: I've got a book that came out recently called it's and It's a graphic novel about Marcus Aurelius. And then I've got another book that is coming out next spring, which is a biography, a prose biography of Marcus Aurelius for Yale University Press. And I'm working on another book at the moment. That is a secret. Um, ah, a secret. It's, it's, kind of, it's about Socrates, basically.
0: Awesome. That's awesome. Okay, so uh, you are well-versed in the world of Stoicism. Uh, that's. I think that'll be mostly the theme of this this episode, uh, as we talk about how to think like a Roman emperor. But of course, I'd love to hear more about uh, your more recent works. So, but why don't we start with, uh, will you explain Stoicism? What is it? Stoicism is an ancient Greek
1: school of philosophy. It's founded in 301 BC by a guy called Zeno of Sitium, who wasn't actually Greek, he was Phoenician. He was a merchant of shipwrecked to Athens. And that philosophy survived for about 500 years. So it was a big deal back in the day. And so people might be familiar with some of the names. The early Stoics, their writings are lost except for fragments. But we have writings from Seneca, who is an advisor to the Emperor Nero, from Epictetus, who is one of the most famous teachers of philosophy in the Roman world. And from the Emperor Marcus Aurelius, who was a big deal back in his day, because he was an emperor. And people may have seen him played by Richard Harris in the movie Gladiator, for example. So Seneca, Epictetus, and Marcus Aurelius are the three most famous Stoics today, because their writings survive. But also people may have heard of Cicero, who is a Roman consul um, from an earlier period. He's one of the most famous orators of antiquity, and he wasn't a Stoic. But he wrote extensively about Stoicism, so he, and he, he was interested in the Stoics. He's one of our other uh, sources. So those are people, things people may have heard of. And uh, Stoicism is a philosophy that's very heavily influenced by another dude that people may have heard of called Socrates. He's the quintessential Athenian philosopher. He died a few generations before Zeno arrived at Athens, but Zeno was interested in his teachings. And he's a kind of godfather of Stoicism. It's a Socratic school of philosophy. And it teaches a moral worldview. It's a complicated philosophy. It's a big philosophy. Uh, its essential teaching is that virtue, or arity in Greek, is the only true good. It's a moral philosophy, but it has a massive, obvious, psychological consequence, which is that if somebody believed that virtue, which is a character trait, is the only truly important thing in life, and that things like health, wealth, reputation are of secondary value, that person, someone who follows that worldview, would be less upset if they lost their health, wealth, or reputation, and they would be more focused on how well they cope. With the deprivation or loss of these things unless attached to them. So they would have what psychologists today call emotional resilience. So people throughout the ages have associated Stoic philosophy with uh, psychological resilience and for that reason, Stoicism is the main philosophical inspiration for the leading modern evidence-based form of psychotherapy which is called cognitive behavioural psychotherapy. My background is in psychotherapy as well as classics and philosophy so that's why I ended up writing these books
0: so uh, health and wealth are a common theme for my podcast uh, I, uh, I I joke that well not so much but the biggest the big topics we talk about are health wealth wisdom and peace how to obtain all of those things and uh, if I understand you correctly the Stoics would emphasize wisdom above Everything. All of things. Yeah. Yeah, so tell us, why is wisdom so important to the Stoics?
1: Well, it goes back to Socrates, you see. Like, so Socrates put forward the arguments first that the Stoics then built this philosophy on. Just as a side note, that Stoicism is one of the few schools of ancient philosophy that, that's not really taught on undergraduate philosophy uh, curricula. And over the years, when I've asked academic philosophers about that, my first degrees in philosophy, and it was only after I graduated that I really properly began studying the Stoics. I studied Plato and Aristotle at university, but not Stoicism. Um, When I ask academics why they don't study the Stoics, they say, well, because the Stoics take concepts and arguments from earlier philosophers like Socrates, Plato and Aristotle. And all they really do is develop the practical application of those ideas to everyday life. So then they say, well, why would anybody want to study that? Which obviously seems like a kind of strange attitude, because that's precisely what most ordinary people are actually interested in these days. So that kind of explains both why Stoicism was neglected by academic philosophers, but also why there's a huge resurgence of interest in Stoicism today, because it benefits us in daily life but it does so by taking ideas from Socrates. So in Socrates we get the arguments, in the Stoics we get the practical application. So Socrates said, uh, for example, in one of Plato's dialogues called the Euthydemus, he's talking to someone about the definition of good fortune, or what constitutes the goal of life, if you like, flourishing in life, what's life all about. And he says to uh, his interlocutor, the, the friend or companion that he's talking to, how would you define good fortune? And his friend says, well, that's easy, Socrates, duh. Because Socrates is kind of known for asking what we would call today no-brainer questions, you know. And it's one of the reasons that people don't read him because today, because you, you read it and you think, these are kind of dumb questions. But usually there's a kind of, he's he's waiting to spring a surprise on you, like 20 pages later. So this guy says, well, like, having loads of money, like, you know, having a good job, a nice house, like, lots of friends, being healthy and good-looking, and, you know, all of these are the things that constitute good fortune in life. Everybody agrees about that. And Socrates says, yeah, cool, what about, like, wisdom and self-discipline and, you know, moral justice and stuff like that? And and he says, well, yeah, I guess, you know, the, the, those things, of course, like, are things we admire, like, someone would want those as well. And so, he's like Columbo, and do you ever watch the the Columbo show back in the? No, back in no, the I know. No. Well, Uh-oh. Columbo was famous. For, he was a detective, and he would talk to people um, who were suspects, I guess, in a, an investigation. And then he would be just about to leave, and he'd his catchphrase he'd say just one more thing. Why? And then he he'd hit them with a zinger of a question on his way out the door. Right. And Socrates did that. So he'd say, oh, yeah, just one more thing. He'd say, um, you know, you mentioned wealth, he said. But, you know, surely if you got a lot of money and gave it to somebody who was wise and self-disciplined and, and, and kind and virtuous and stuff, that would be cool. Like, because they could use it wisely and virtuously and do lots of good things with all that money. And so his friends like yeah, like, yeah, no, that's why I said, you know, like, good fortune consists having lots of money and, and stuff as well. And Socrates said, but what would happen if you took that big pile of money and gave it to somebody who was foolish, intemperate and vicious? Wouldn't it just allow them to do even more foolish and temperate and vicious things, right? Um, and his interlocutor says, well, I guess so. And Socrates says, well wouldn't it become a bad thing then? It would allow them to have more influence over their environment, but maybe to do bad things. So, for example, if you gave a billion dollars to an evil dictator, that might be bad because they might use it to do more evil dictatorial things, right? Um, You're just giving them more control. And, And whether that's good or bad depends on how you use it, the use that you make of it, he says. So maybe money in itself is neither good nor bad. But what matters is the use that you make of it. And his interlocutor says, well, okay, you've got me there, Socrates. Maybe you're right. And Socrates says, you know, spoiler alert, as we say today, he says, this applies to all of the other things that you mentioned, except wisdom and the other virtues, which are character traits. Like, so even health, friends, reputation. So if he said, we're going to take this evil dictator and improve his health and, and, you know, get get him more friends and supporters, that may be a bad idea. Whereas for a good, virtuous and wise person to have more uh, health and more friends and supporters, more resources, you know, would be a good thing. Because all of these things really just allow people to extend their control over their environment. And whether that's a good thing or a bad thing is going to depend on the type of person they are. So Socrates says, look, ultimately what this leads to is the idea that all of the things that you named are neither good nor bad in themselves, except wisdom. And I guess moral wisdom, moral virtue, which determines the use that we make of them. So maybe moral wisdom is the only true good. And that becomes the core or centerpiece of Stoic philosophy, basically. And I guess the subtext there is that most people initially will confuse these superficial or secondary goods with the goal of life. But it doesn't take long for them to question that. On reflection, and go, okay, yeah, maybe, maybe it's not all about money, and maybe money's only a really of value, and, and all these other things maybe are, are, are similar, um, depending on the on the use that you make of them. Um, but that leads, like I said, strangely to emotional resilience. Like it's good for our mental health, it's good for our well being if we were, arguably, if we were to embrace this uh, more philosophical perspective on our values. But one thing's for sure, Caden that when you're born and you pop out of the womb like a blank slate, not having read the Greek classics, and you look around you for some kind of guidance as to what you should be doing with your little arms and legs in, in order to lead your life, you know, a lot of what you see around you would suggest that the goal of life is the acquisition of wealth and reputation, because that's what everyone else seems to be running around doing. So it's no surprise that two and a half thousand years later, throughout the centuries, generation after generation of children have grown up thinking that the goal of life is health, wealth and reputation and stuff like that, and having relatively superficial values, which they've modelled in the behaviour of the adults around them. But when we reflect more deeply on our own values... It, I don't think it takes that many steps before we arrive at the conclusion that there's something else that makes life worthwhile.
0: That's brilliant. That's a that, that's a great summary of uh, everything that I've learned for <laughs> Stoicism and <clears throat> ancient okay. philosophy. And, and uh, well, I want to jump back to this in our discussion later about how to attribute these virtues, these values, how to develop them in ourselves. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, first, I wanted to ask you about your background in psychotherapy. With uh, you would discuss it in how to think like a Roman emperor a little bit. Your background and how your uh, your philo- how philosophy intermingles with cognitive behavioral therapy. So, tell us how you got introduced to um, your your psychotherapy practice and how they how they're related.
1: Well, when I was a young guy, I quite, by coincidence, um, by a ton of events, I got into reading philosophy and really started off reading books about religion first. Uh, I read the Bible and then I started reading Chinese stuff and Buddhist stuff and, you know, Hindu scriptures and like a lot of self-improvement and psychology stuff like when I was like about 15 roughly. And, uh, I began... That kind of got me into reading Greek classics and I read Plato when I was like 16 or 17, something like that. And it kind of stuck with me and I decided I was going to go to university and study philosophy at Aberdeen in Scotland. And then after I did my philosophy degree, I thought, like, uh, you know, it's a bit of a joke, really, that what, what, does, what job do you get when you graduate from a philosophy degree? So I thought, unless you want to be a, another philosophy lecturer, like, there aren't uh, really that many jobs for philosophers out there. But someone mentioned to me, a guy came and gave a talk to the philosophy society, actually, and he was a psychotherapist. And he said, being a psychotherapist is quite a a good profession for someone with a philosophy degree, you know, because you're interested in the mind, and you're quite reflective and you're interested in logic, you know, and these are useful skills to have if you're working with people in, in this kind of environment. And there was some truth in that, and so I began training in counselling and psychotherapy. That was um, about twenty-five years ago, and I went and did my master's degree at Sheffield University at the Centre for Interdisciplinary Centre for Psychotherapeutic Studies, which was an interdisciplinary centre. So we studied philosophy, psychotherapy, sociology, all kind of mashed mm-hmm. together, and. I, by chance, you know, I stumbled into doing these things, and then I got teaching other psychotherapists and supervising them. I had a clinical practice in Harley Street in London for many years, and uh, my so my niche has always been this interdisciplinary niche of combining philosophy and psychotherapy. And I, I had a kind of abortive attempt at it because when I graduated uh, in my undergraduate degree at Aberdeen, we studied two philosophers who are often only considered more advanced and, and usually you'd study them at postgraduate level. And we studied Heidegger and we studied Wittgenstein, and those were two of my favourite philosophers. And so I started looking at Heidegger and Jean-Paul Sartre and existential philosophy and how that could be combined with psychoanalytic therapy like Freud and Jung. And I spent like a year or two doing that, and then I gave up. I thought it just became way too complicated and abstract and seemed not so far removed from the lives of, I guess, the working class clients that I was working with. I, um, for a while, around that time, I worked as a, uh, a drugs counsellor and schools counsellor in South London uh, with in several schools working with largely socially excluded kids, mainly 15-year-olds. Um, And so existential philosophy and kind of avant-garde psychoanalytic theory didn't really gel with that client group, basically. It was too pompous and abstract and, you know, it it wasn't really a connection. They wanted practical short-term guidance, really. And so I started again from scratch. I kind of ripped everything up. I threw out all my books on Heidegger, as it were, and uh, I s- started looking at the Stoics. It was one of the few schools of philosophy I hadn't looked at, and I thought, this stuff seems kind of practical, and it seemed relevant uh, because it was more down to earth, and I realised it was the inspiration for cognitive therapy, and I got more into cognitive therapy, and I never looked back. I ended up becoming my, my career. So maybe I should explain the relationship is um, from the 1950s onwards, the, what happened was that people gradually started to turn against psychoanalysis and question it, and there was a proliferation of other approaches to psychotherapy. And around the same time, researchers were doing research on the emotions, and they started to realise that our beliefs and our thinking shape our emotions far more than people had assumed and Freud's approach was kind of misguided about this and there was a therapist in New York in the 1950s called Albert Ellis who had been a psychoanalytic therapist and then he got frustrated and ripped up all these books and decided to start again from scratch and he had read Marcus Aurelius and Epictetus not so much Seneca interestingly when he was a young guy, he'd read them. And he thought, this Stoicism stuff kind of seems like it would be relevant. And so back in the 1950s, Ellis created a new form of psychotherapy that he called Rational Emotive Behavior Therapy, which is one of the inspirations for what we now call Cognitive Behavioural Therapy, or CBT. And the reason that Seneca... Uh, the, sorry, the reason that Albert Ellis popularised the Stoics was... Part of the job of an evidence-based psychotherapist is to take complicated research, to understand research methods, and to take complicated scientific research and translate it into language that a 15-year-old kid in a failing South London school could understand, or an elderly Jewish lady, or a guy that drives a bus or works in a building site, right? So we have to take scientific research and translate it into concepts that the person sitting in front of us can relate to and understand. And so Ellis thought, how can I take all this research on the emotions, the cognitive theory of emotions, as we call it, and, and translate it into something that, that everyone's going to like, understand. And he remembered the quote from Epictetus that said, it's not things that upset us, but rather our opinions about them. And he would quote that to people and they'd be like, I get it. Like, and so he started teaching that to every single one of his clients. And every single one of his students and he mentions it in virtually all of his books and he wrote many many books and so by the time that i started training in cbt it was a cliche to say it's not things that upset us but rather our our opinions about them so it encapsulates the cognitive theory of emotion which is central to stoicism and central to cognitive therapy and central to the whole what we call cognitive revolution in psychotherapy
0: and that was the connection between the philosophy i was reading and the psychotherapy that i was doing you talk about uh, other schools of philosophy in your book too uh, it sounds like Stoicism follows the vein of CBT the closest but are there other schools of philosophy that you that you like or that uh, um, maybe you are, uh, are familiar with that are also up the same vein? Yeah I mean Stoicism is the, the school uh, Ellis also said he was influenced by Buddhism
1: for example and I think he mentions Taoism. and he, he was a very well read guy actually he's not your typical intellectual, like, but he's quite a blunt-spoken guy, but he, he was a bit of an amateur in a way, but he's very well-read and, and very open about his influences. It's something I admire about Ellis. And see, he's just drawing on a lot of different philosophical sources, but uh, Stoics most obviously. And uh, my interests, like I mentioned existentialism, my, my dissertation at university was in Jean-Paul Sartre, and, um, In ancient philosophy, the works of Aristotle are becoming more popular again. Uh, The Epicurean philosophy, it's the main rival of Stoicism, is kind of becoming more popular. But Stoicism has gone through a huge renaissance that massively overshadows these things. But I did also mention that the Stoics are influenced by Socrates and our main source for Socrates, uh, no writings by Socrates survive, but he's depicted, we know of him, through dialogues that were written mainly by Plato, one of his students, and also by one of his other students called Xenophon. Many of his writings survive today. So Plato, Xenophon, and Socrates, also very important. Precursors of Stoicism, you know, popular, influential today. And there's another philosophy. There's a number of pre-Socratics, which like really old philosophies, um, one of which Pythagoreanism has a kind of therapeutic dimension and uh, influence stoicism as well and I mentioned that uh, school of philosophy also a number of times in, in my book so those are a few of, of the ones that uh, people will find now that there are self-help books coming out mainly like on Aristotle Socrates and Epicureanism um, as well as the popular books on
0: stoicism yeah that's awesome um, so let's talk more about the uh, let's talk more about how stoicism helps people so most, I would say, everybody at some point in their lives feels some sort of level of anxiety or depression, uh, or just or just uh, doesn't or is unable to cope well with hardship. And psychotherapy is part of part of the role of psychotherapy is to help people through those kinds of hardships. So, what are the what are the uh, methods that Stoicism employs? But also is related to modern science and cognitive behavioural therapy to help people alleviate their feelings of suffering, uh, their depression, anxiety, and so forth. Well, the first thing is there are lots of them. So the first book I wrote on stoicism
1: and psychotherapy kind of reviews all the connections between them and the techniques that can be found. And I listed about 18, and maybe there are a few more. And each of those 18, they also could be divided up a little bit further. So there are lots it's a Large toolbox of techniques that the, the Stoics bequeathed to us, and the other precursor that I'd give preamble I'd give to answering that question is to say when people talk about like self help and therapy techniques, they often kind of imagine maybe a visualization technique or a meditation technique or um, like a mantra they would say or like a form they'd fill out or something like that, like journaling or visualizing or these kind of things. But as a therapist, I would say. It's The distinction between theory and practice isn't uh, as sharp as people might think. So sometimes, you know, there's nothing as practical, as the saying goes, there's nothing as practical as a good theory. So some of the most powerful techniques in cognitive therapy are actually concepts or ideas or ways of looking at things. Um, so there's also there's a kind of overlap between the concepts, and these
0: more behavioral techniques or visualization That's a super broad question. There's a lot of angles to take.
1: So I would say, you know, I can give you some examples of techniques, but again, I'll I'll explain that for me the most important thing. One is a concept and the other one is is actually a technique, but it's a very subtle technique. Uh, And then there's like other simpler techniques. So the most important concept Uh, I touched on earlier when I said it's not things that upset us, but rather opinions about them. When clients spoke to Albert Ellis, the people come into therapy, they normally talk about their anxiety and their depression or their feelings of anger. And they'll talk about how painful those feelings are, how they're affecting their relationships, how they're affecting their performance at work, their sleep, their physical health. You know, So really what they're doing, without realising it, is giving a, a catalogue of reasons why they should be motivated to change their anger, anxiety, or depression. But So they're psyching themselves up for change in a way when they... Uh, uh, unintentionally, it's a side effect of sitting in a consulting room and describing all the problems. Um, but then they'll usually reach a point where they say, I know my anger, anxiety, or depression has all these terrible consequences. It's been affecting me for a really long time. It's destroying my life. But I can't help it. It's just the way I feel, is what they'll say. And at that point, that's an expression of stuckness, as we sometimes put it. And at that point, Ellis would lean forward sometimes and he'd smile. And he'd say, yeah, but it's not just how you feel, is it? It's also how you think. Dun, dun, dun. And that was the <laughs> cognitive revolution in psychotherapy. And they'd say, what, do, what the hell do you mean, doctor? Like, and he would say, but it's not just a feeling. Like you don't feel angry. You also think angry when you're angry. And why would that be so important? Because angry thoughts have propositional value. They're true or false. They consist of distortions. They might be exaggerated or jumping to conclusions. Um are based on false evidence and so on. So it opens up a whole toolbox of cognitive disputational techniques. We can question, like, where's the evidence? So someone might say, I feel depressed. Why do you feel depressed? Because I believe that nobody likes me, everybody hates me. Well, is it possible that's an exaggeration? Or is it an overgeneralization? Are you jumping to conclusions about what other people think of you? Where's the evidence for and against this? Is there anything that contradicts this belief? And if the belief changes then usually, to a large extent, the feelings will change. And we've proven that time and time again in cognitive therapy. But if you allow someone to say, I can't help it, it's just the way I feel, then they're stuck. But if you say, no, it's your thinking, and your thinking might be true or false. We can examine your thinking. We can question it philosophically. That opens up a whole toolbox of techniques. But before you can even do that, you have to get the concept that feelings are also thoughts and beliefs. And that's an alien. Is this the same,
0: I'm sorry to interrupt you. Is this the same thing as cognitive dis- distancing? Cognitive distancing is a very closely related
1: concept. Um, so, cognitive dis- distancing is the the next really important technique I was going to describe. In it, it's, oh, so a spoiler alert. Okay. Well, like it, it's a good it's a good introduction. It's a good segue. So, cognitive distancing is a jargon term. It's a neologism. And that should tell you we don't have an English word that captures this concept. Now, that in itself is interesting. So it's one of the most powerful, important techniques in psychology. We don't even have a name for it in in, in, in English. Like, we have to make up a technical term for it. So this is an alien concept to most people, right? So it's, uh, it's going to take them a minute to wrap their head around it. It's not something they're used to to talking about. They never talk about it because they don't have a word for it. Cognitive distancing is the realisation that we're looking at the world through the lens of certain beliefs or opinions. So our Beck, the other pioneer of cognitive therapy, R.N.T. Beck, used to explain it to his clients using the following metaphor – He'd say, imagine that you're wearing rose-tinted glasses, so the world looks rose-tinted. But you don't think, I'm looking through pink glass at that house. You just think, that house is pink, that dog is pink, that guy over there is pink. Or at least you would do if you have been wearing the glasses for a long time, and you kind of forget about them. You just assume that the world is pink, right? Well, imagine you're wearing depressive glasses. Like, and you see the world through depressive lenses. And so you think that things are catastrophic, for instance. Um, So you don't go around thinking, I'm telling myself this is a catastrophe. You think this is a catastrophe. Like, my girlfriend leaving me is a catastrophe. My dog dying is a catastrophe. Like, losing my job is a catastrophe, not getting a promotion is a catastrophe, just the same as you thought it was pink or blue if you're looking through the tinted glasses and Beck would say, well suppose you take the glasses off and you look at them and you think, oh maybe the house isn't pink maybe the dog's not pink, but the lenses I was looking through contain the quality of pinkness Right now the key thing is, normally these two things get fused together the pinkness and external reality are inseparable you see the house as pink but when you take the glasses off, you separate the, you peel up a layer. You think, no, oh, the pinkness is a separate thing from the house. I was just c- combining them before. That's cognitive distancing when you separate or distance the beliefs and value judgments from the external things to which they refer. It's a, a psychological knack or maneuver. It's almost a bit like if you were to step to one side and observe yourself holding a belief like you're now looking at the belief rather than looking through the belief if that makes sense so we have to kind of find metaphors to try and articulate what's going on here so it sounds odd but we there's a number of different ways we can train people to do this and we know from research in psychotherapy that when you train people to kind of make this shift in perspective it it benefits them in a number of ways so the there are two main ways it benefits them uh, the most obvious one is that when we gain cognitive distance, we, all call, we also call this diffusing, verbal diffusion, is what behavioural psychologists call it. When we um, gain verbal diffusion, typically it dilutes the intensity of certain emotions like anger, anxiety, sadness. So we still feel sad or. Annoyed, or but not as intensely usually as we did when we were completely identifying, completely merging our beliefs with external reality. It's like we have tunnel vision. It's the only way that we can see things. So it's like, it's like we put our feelings under a magnifying glass when we f- fuse them with reality, right? So when I take my pink glasses off and I, I think I could put pink glasses on, or blue glasses, or green glasses, like now the 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 feelings that I get become kind of watered down. But that's the most obvious benefit. There's another more subtle benefit that may be even more important, which is that if I realise that I'm seeing something as a catastrophe, but I could maybe someone else might look at it and view it as an opportunity. Or someone else might look at it and see it as a setback, but not catastrophic. If I think there are multiple possible ways of looking at my girlfriend leaving me or me not getting a promotion, That gives me something that we sometimes call cognitive flexibility. It allows me to be more creative in figuring out solutions. And that might be even more important than reducing the intensity of the emotion. Because I have to figure out how I'm going to cope with not getting the promotion. Well, if I've got tunnel vision and I can only see it as a massive depressing catastrophe, I'm less capable to think of creative different ways of responding to the situation. If I think I could see it that way or I could see it as a big opportunity or I could see it as bad but not the end of the world like shifting between these different perspectives makes me better at problem solving and figuring out coping strategies. So how can Stoicism help people? It can help people by giving them a number of ways of training themselves and gaining this kind of cognitive distance, which is good for emotional resilience in general. And it gives us many other... I'll, I'll give you one example of a, a simpler technique that we find in Stoicism, which is, I know from um, experience, people find easy to relate to. But it's kind of related to what we've been talking about. There's a technique that we call, modern scholars call the view from above, where the Stoics describe visualising events from really high above. No, it's easy to do, it's a visualisation technique. Sometimes even in, in ancient literature, you're, you're, you're just reading a, a passage and, and it already it makes you picture things from high above. You can make an audio recording that would guide you to imagine you're floating up in the sky and looking down at events from high above, expanding your spatial perspective, but also expanding your chronological perspective. There's many ways that you can do that. There's a thing called the overview effect that's been reported by astronauts when they look at the planet Earth. I'm going, actually, at the moment I'm working in a workshop that I'm going to go down to Langley and deliver at the NASA base. Um, And and so NASA, they're very aware of the overview effect that comes from going into space and seeing what the world looks like. And it it has a profound psychological effect on people. But one of the things it does, again, is to kind of moderate or dilute our level of distress. Because we might think, I've lost my job, but that's just like one small moment in the longer story of my life, My and my life is just one story among, like, billions of other stories that are unfolding on the earth and countless billions that have unfolded throughout history. So I can still have opinions about what's happening to me, but it, it seems kind of uh, moderated by just being, like, one piece of information and among lots of other pieces of information about uh, my life and about other people's lives in general. A broader perspective tends to lead to a kind of moderation of our emotions. It's easy to do that. You can just visualize things. There's also verbal ways of doing the same thing. Like and um, in cognitive therapy, we have many therapy techniques. And one of the things I used to train therapists. So one of the things I was very interested in is that some therapy techniques are quite hard to do. They're complicated and require skill and experience. And other therapy techniques don't. And I always thought it was strange that trainee therapists didn't distinguish between easy techniques and hard techniques. So one of the easiest techniques in therapy is if a client says my girlfriend dumped me and I'm upset about that, my wife left me and my dog's died or something like that, you can say to them, like, how do you feel about that right now? And they might say, I'm gutted, I'm really upset, it like, feels like the end of the world. And then you you, say, you can say to them, so suppose like, you know, a week, two weeks, three weeks, let's say a month from now, looking back on it, like, what difference do you think there might be in the way that you feel about it from that perspective? And they'll say, well, it'll still be upsetting, but, you know, maybe I've moved on a bit, it won't feel quite as bad. And you say, well, what about if it was a year from now and you're looking back on it? from that perspective like how do you think you'd feel differently about in the same event and I say well like, I mean probably wouldn't feel as upset I wouldn't feel depressed like panicky about it like you say what well, about 10 years from now well yeah obviously like probably moved on it wouldn't really bother me that much and then you say well what prevents you from feeling the same way right now about it that you would in 10 years time and they look at you at that point as if you're crazy because like, it just <laughs> happened What difference does it make whether it happened 10 minutes ago or 10 years ago? Really? Why shouldn't you feel about it the same? And they go, well, 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 I can't. It's not that easy. And and you go, well, you just did it, though. Well, you just did it right now, right? Why not just practice looking back on it in your imagination as if it happened 10 years ago? And you can still deal with it. You can view it objectively and discuss it rationally but you can see it as part of a bigger picture and not have to feel quite as upset about it. Um, you're just speeding up the process of getting used to it in, in that way. And that's really easy to do. It's almost an idiot-proof technique. So I don't know why it's not more common. Like, but the again, it's it's related to the view from above because essentially it's just a technique for broadening your perspective. So you're broadening your chronological perspective uh, as well as when we visualize view from above, we're broadening our Chronological and or spatial perspective.
0: That's awesome. That that reminds me of I uh, I recently read uh, some books on Buddhism Buddhism rather uh, with the disassociation of their their philosophy is the disassociation of yourself your consciousness from your body and from your circumstances yeah. and stoicism says the same thing in different words so uh, in a direct way to overcome your hardship as you just des- as you're describing one of the sim- most simple tactics is to disassociate your identity from the external event from the hardship that that's happened to you that's outside of your control and then to view it it's called the view from above right so you can you can s- you can act as if or, or look at it as if it's happened Ten years ago, yeah, and yeah. Uh, so the the question, the question that I have that uh, is, well, I, th- this thing just happened to me, and of course the emotions are raw, and and I feel like I've been wronged, or I feel like this this uh, this doesn't have. I've done everything right in my life. Why why do I have to experience this? And um, yeah, wh- wh- how can you say that I I can? pretend to that it happened so long ago to get over it. I'm, I'm just speaking, you know, uh, metaphorically, but that's, but you're, that's the, what comes in my But you're not pretending.
1: By yeah. You're anticipating what it's going to th- actually feel like at some point in the future. And, you know, the only reason you're upset about it is because of your current perspective. Because it's not the thing that upsets you, it's your way of thinking about it. Like, So sure, you could choose to hang on to the current perspective that catastrophizes it if you want to. But my question would be to turn it around. Why would you choose to continue thinking about it in a way that's extremely distressing and unhelpful to you when there are other ways of thinking about it that might be less upsetting and more helpful in terms of your ability to move forward? And another way of highlighting that is to use another technique, a related technique that we call modelling. So when something upsets you, you might say to yourself, can I imagine that there might be another way of looking at this? So, like, you know, I'm really upset, but have I ever heard of anyone else going through something similar and coping with it better? And what was the difference between me and them? Like how how are they looking at? Well, they're because they're seeing it more as an opportunity. Or they're not they're seeing it as bad, but not that. Well, what well, prevents me from seeing it that way then? Like I don't have to. And the interesting thing is actually, I don't have to abandon my catastrophic view and embrace their view. All I have to do actually is realize, like, to gain cognitive distance All I have, all I have to realize is that I can move between them. Like, have your catastrophic way of looking at things. But just as long as you realise it's not the only way of looking at it, then, Mm. you know, you'll alleviate the distress and you'll be more able to move forward. Have it if you want. But uh, you're probably going to think it's pointless, right? Like, if you realise you could view it as an opportunity or as a setback, but not the end of the world, well, you're you're unlikely to want to go back, like, to viewing it as an overwhelming catastrophe. Like, you're doing it to yourself. So, Mm -hmm. you know, why? Like if it, and the reason that people hang on to that is because they don't realise there is an alternative. It doesn't feel like they're doing it to themselves. Because that's, that's because it's fused with reality. So like, but it is a catastrophe. It is overwhelming. Like, but once they realise that they only feel that way because of the perspective they're choosing to adopt and that they're doing it to themselves, in a sense, like, then it raises the question, why would you want to do it to yourself? Why continue to do it to Mm. yourself? And most people will feel that it's pointless and unnecessary. You might as well keep punching yourself in the face. It's like you're punching yourself in the face and you haven't noticed. (laughs) And someone says, do you do realise you're doing that to yourself? And you go, oh, yeah, I guess so.
0: It kind of feels a bit weird to continue now that you've pointed out that. (laughs) Once you you recognise it, 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 it's it's the um, being aware of not just... Yes, awareness of your of your circumstances, but also how you are reacting to the situation.
1: Yeah, you can't we're Unsee it, like yeah. once you once you gain the insight, it's the reality. You, by the way, I'm going I'm going to digress slightly. Well, kind of. There's something I want to say about um, helping people to cope with their emotions and so on. Like there are many things. Like over the years, I worked with many different types of therapists and many different I've taught many many techniques like I said some of them are complicated and some of them are kind of nuanced and subtle but some of the things that help people the most are are so basic we don't see the wood for the trees my belief is that one of the most basic things that really benefits people to gain emotional resilience um, and to handle their emotions is that We talk about our emotions as if they're uh, simple. Um, We talk about having anger or anxiety or depression as if it was just a kind of homogenous blob of feeling, right? Um, We don't talk about our anger as if it's composed of lots of ingredients, like it's a cake that's baked from flour and water and eggs and sugar. We just go, it's just a cake. It would be like if you were a small child and you saw a watch, an analogue watch, for the first time, and you saw the hands turning, the second hand moving, and you thought, well, is this magic? Is it some kind of organic? It just happens. The hands turn. And then someone takes the back off and shows you all the cogs inside, and you suddenly realise there's a mechanism that makes it work. There's lots of components. It's not just like one thing, it's lots of bits that are working together. And if you take one of those cogs out, the whole thing works differently or it breaks, it stops working. And our emotions are like that. The biggest obstacle we face is the one that's so fundamental, so simple that nobody notices it, which is that we see our emotions as homogenous or simple when in fact they're composite. And so an emotion... It consists of lots of different types of physical sensation. It might be the way you breathe. It might be the beating of your heart. It might be the hot flush on the back of your neck. It might be the tension in your jaw, the furrowing of your brow, the focusing and movement of your eyes. It might be your action tendency, um, your desire to punch or to run away. Um, It might be certain thoughts that are going through your mind, angry thoughts or anxious thoughts uh, or underlying beliefs, it might be the tone of voice in which you repeat those thoughts to yourself and the memories that are evoked and images that you visualise, all of those things go together, those are the egg the sugar the milk the, all the ingredients that go together to be baked into the cake of depression or anxiety and if you remove the sugar and replaced it with salt you'd end up baking a very different cake. Um, But if you don't realize that this thing is baked in multiple ingredients, you have far less control over it because you don't realize what the switches are that you can pull. If you don't know what a watch is, you you have far less control over it than if you take the back off and you can see all the cogs. You only need to pull one of these cogs out and the whole thing stops working, right? If you understand that your emotions are composite, you can gain more control. So in cognitive therapy, we do that one main way, which is, as I mentioned earlier, to realise that our emotions also consist of beliefs. But then we could say that there's different types of beliefs. Like, you know, and also, we, like I said, we could talk about the physical sensations or the action tendencies as well, and the visual images that go together to bake the cake of emotion. In cognitive therapy, we say, OK, at the very least, in baby steps, we're going to distinguish between the emotion as a whole and the underlying belief that maintains it. And then we can have more control because we can do things with the belief and it changes the emotion. But the Stoics would also say another baby step, a really simple distinction, is to say there are aspects of your emotion that are involuntary. They are what modern psychologists call automatic or spontaneous. Like, so there are images that pop into your mind when you're angry. It's too late to unthink them. They've already happened like there your heart is beating and your blood pressure is rising and you could try and change that but it's not directly under your control It, it happens to you um but then there's other things that you're doing voluntarily so you choose what to then do with your arms and legs like you could walk out of the room or you could punch a guy and you choose what you go on to say to yourself next the conversation that you have about your initial feelings of anger is voluntary. You could ruminate on all the reasons that you're upset with somebody, or you could stop doing that and try and think of more constructive ways to cope or be assertive or take a time out or something like that, right? So there are aspects of the emotional experience that are voluntary and aspects that are involuntary. And I guarantee you that many mental health problems in a clinical setting revolve around people confusing these two things and trying really hard to suppress, avoid, or otherwise control involuntary components of emotion, or failing to take responsibility for the voluntary aspects of their emotion. So I specialised as a therapist in treating anxiety disorders, and one of the main anxiety disorders is a thing called GAD, or Generalised Anxiety Disorder, which is also called Pathological Worrying or the worry disorder. And with those clients, for instance, they'll try and block out automatic thoughts. They'll take, use TV or drugs or computer games to distract themselves from upsetting thoughts and feelings, which is and doesn't work, because the more you do it, the more those thoughts will tend to just rebound in the future. My um, And then they'll usually... Indulge in ruminating or worrying about upsetting things. And we know if, I, if you ask someone with GAD, if you write on a flip chart, my worrying is uncontrollable, and ask them to rate from zero to 100% how strongly they agree with that statement, they would usually just say 100%. 100% is totally uncontrollable. But they're wrong. Because like, worrying, which is the cognitive process of constructing sentences, like, why is this happening? Like, what if this happens? What if that happens? What? How will I cope with it? Like this kind of conversation that people have, we call it worrying. Like, um, is voluntary. It's a high-level cognitive process. The clue is, unlike automatic thoughts, which just pop in isolation into your mind, worrying is a sequence of thoughts. It's a conversation that flows, and that tells you that it could be interrupted or redirected. So you you can take control over it. But usually people who have GAD will say 100% it's uncontrollable. They're wrong about that. They're underestimating the amount of voluntary control that they have over that aspect of their anxiety. And they're trying to control involuntary aspects of anxiety. So at the very, very least, you take the worrying and anxiety and you say, let's draw a line down the middle and say which bits of this are involuntary, and which bits of it are voluntary, and get clear about that. And that insight in itself would make you far more psychologically resilient. Now, the Stoics do that, because they have a more nuanced understanding of emotion than we do. So very basically, I think the biggest problem we face is that we have an overly simplistic folk psychology, like a popular psychology of emotion, and it it imprisons us in our emotions, because we are stupid and naive about the way that emotion works. We have a childlike naivety about emotions and we, we need to make more fine-grained, slight, just very slightly more careful distinctions in order to get beyond that primitive caveman, childlike kind of level of understanding and I'd say also the internet is awash with self-help and self-improvement advice and um, often it, it doesn't seem to be helping people Why? Like and a lot of the self-help and self-improvement advice to my point, from my perspective, is like an evidence-based, a former evidence-based clinician, I should say, uh, I mainly write books now, The it's a lot of bad psychological advice. And, and one of the most fundamental errors it makes is uh, it buys into this primitive, what we call the lump theory of emotion. Um, it doesn't help people to understand their emotions in a more nuanced way. You can't begin doing self-improvement or self-help as long as you don't understand what emotions even are like if you've got a misconception about the very nature of emotion that's so basic then all the books that you read on self-help and all the techniques that you do you'll be doing on the basis of ignorance like you know it, it would be like you know as if you you know would be like you decided you were going to make a living as a watchmaker but you have never taken the back of a watch you didn't know there were cogs inside them. You know, like, you have to understand what emotions are if you are going to work with them. And yet, most of the self-help advice that we have doesn't give us that understanding.
0: Yeah, there should be... Uh, um, well, I want to ask uh, what... So just before we move on, this is all super helpful. What, what, when someone is out looking for self-help, anything, what are maybe some of the most important uh, components... Of maybe a message or a theme of a self-help um, uh, person or program? Well, I'm going to give a very simple answer to that, is that which is that it should be evidence-based.
1: Evidence-based. Because like, right. we have like a hundred years of research and psychology and more and we have tens of thousands of research studies on the emotions and psychotherapy and yet there's a whole industry of self-help that in many cases, says stuff that completely flies in the face of what we actually know about the, the psychology of emotion. So evidence-based, I mean, the funny thing is, is that from a clinical point of view, there are lots of evidence-based self-help books, but they, they, they're usually not best-sellers, weirdly. Like, um, you know, I'll give an example, but probably the best-selling uh, self-help, self-improvement author, or one of them, like it uh, would be I don't know something like jordan peterson's books are like huge huge like but the stuff that they say in them is very very different from the stuff that you would find in uh like books by cognitive behavioral therapists like that are but those books are are drawing on what research like lots of independent research from many many researchers tells us both about the nature of different psychological or behavioural problems and the type of techniques that typically benefit people. So, some, I mean, there, there are benefits to self help authors who are more kind of um, independent thinkers, let's say. Um, but it's an odd situation that someone would write self help literature that doesn't acknowledge or draw on the research that exists. You know, because there are lots of books the most famous one is Feeling Good by David Burns is a classic yeah. CBT book on depression it's, it's a little bit old or now there are you know, a lot of good more recent books based on more recent research um, but it, from a clinician's point of view it's, it's, it's strange in a way that uh, a lot of uh, self-help advice kind of ignores and the odd thing is you might say "Well, oh, hang on a minute Donald, you're into stoicism that's two and a half thousand years old like, so that might seem like a contradiction, but in fact, you know, one of the reasons I'm interested in Stoicism is that at least it's consistent, broadly consistent, with the stuff that we find in cognitive therapy, partly because it inspired cognitive therapy to begin with. So I would say, yeah, the Stoics weren't doing research, but the stuff that they say, broadly speaking, can be reconciled with and combined with modern research and psychotherapy, whereas some psychological advice can't be or uh, Actually, let me say something else that's kind of to take a a step back a bit. But I think it's good advice. Some of the best advice, most useful advice, I think people could benefit from hearing maybe approaches the subject from a slightly different perspective than they would expect. So I'm going to suggest that there's something worse than bad advice, which is the wrong good advice. Uh, Because if I look at people who... And, and therapists are used to... One thing that therapists see a lot of is 99% of the clients have been reading self-help books. And then they come into therapy and they, they, they'll usually they'll say, I've got this whole library of self-help books. I've done all these courses and books, but I'm getting worse. Is you, so maybe I'm biased in that regard. But any, every, every day, every cognitive therapist around the world will see clients who come for the first session and say, I'm a self-help junkie, but I'm getting worse and worse, and mm. my problem's out of control. Um, and so what's they might even be reading books that have got good advice on them. But one of the biggest hazards for people is getting a kind of bum steer, or being sent in the wrong direction. I, I'll give you a really specific example of that. And there's a reason why it's the case. I think... Every day on the internet, I see people who seem to me to have anger management problems. I don't know if anyone else has noticed this, but, like, there's a lot of angry people on the internet, (laughs) right? Like, trolling, flaming, verbal abuse. Some of them are elected politicians. Like, some of them are self-help gurus themselves. Like... But there are people that become really angry, abusive, like stalk, troll, people online. And, you know, uh, there's a lot of people that are super into self-help and self-improvement that behave in a really aggressive, angry, hostile, antisocial way. And I think that's because they're getting self-help advice, which has some, is some truth in it. It's not completely false. But it's the wrong advice for them. You know, it would be like as if somebody was dying of cancer and you give them antibiotics and it, it helped them, you know, with some chest infection that they had, but it, it really didn't help them with the the, the tumours. And they might say, are you saying that antibiotics don't work? And you say, I'm not saying antibiotics don't work, but not for the problem that you're dying of, Right. So I'm not saying that your self help advice that you guys are reading isn't work. You know, it doesn't work, but not for your anger. It's not working for your anger management issues, Like And reading more and more self help about cultivating self discipline or whatever, tidying your room or making your bed or whatever, like doesn't seem to be making you le- any less angry because it's not anger management advice, basically. Like, and so really for you, it's bad advice. Is good advice, it's become bad advice because it's the wrong advice it's the wrong treatment for your problem what's lacking in it, so what clinicians would say is what well, your problem is, you've got the wrong diagnosis Why like, you know you, you, and, and this is more dangerous than, in some ways than, than simp, simply bad advice because people go, but this seems like good advice, it seems like it's working but it's the wrong area it's the wrong problem and so, there's a reason why we see this so much with anger And that is that anxiety and depression are internalizing emotions. So people who are anxious blame themselves for it usually and people who are depressed blame themselves for everything. Like but people who are angry typically blame everyone else, including you. And so the angry person, the cliche, the stereotype of the angry person is that they would say, I don't need therapy. You guys need therapy, not me. <laughs> like, and so they don't tend to self-refer. When you see angry people is in institutions, like prisons where they're referred, or in schools, or in the military, or in a relationship because their spouse has referred them. Like, and they go, oh, I've told that I have to go for anger management. And you're like, yeah, yeah, it's probably for a reason, right? But people tend to be, tend to be less likely to self-refer. So angry people are less likely to seek self-help. So, although the internet is awash with self help, hardly any of it addresses the problem of anger. And yet, if you were an alien or you were beamed from the past to the future and you looked at the internet, you'd think 21st century man has a massive anger management problem. <laughs> like, th- these guys are all angry about everything all the time. Like, and they're doing crazy stuff because of it and you think, surely it's obvious, like, someone should do something, do, do these guys have self-improvement advice on this internet thing? <laughs> and apparently they've got loads of it. Like, so wait a minute, what's going wrong here? Don't you think that's weird? The internet is awash with self-improvement and self-help advice, and yet it's also awash with people who obviously have anger management problems and weirdly, they overlap. Like, a lot of the people with the worst anger management problems are the ones that bang on the most about self-improvement. Advice. This is the wrong advice that they're getting. My, it's a misdirect. My, I, I, think that's one of the biggest problems that our society faces. The Stoics thought partly for that reason that anger was the most urgent issue that we need to address. And so, anyone that's interested in Stoicism in the studying it, they, it should be primarily their own anger that they're focusing on. That's the advice that the, the Stoics give us. Uh, it's the I call it the royal road to self improvement because it tends to be the most neglected part of somebody's personality. That's where all the opportunity, that's where all the gold is buried. Like, you know, if you really want to improve yourself, you would address your anger. How would you do it? Well, you wouldn't do it by saying, it's just how I feel, or it's someone else's fault that well, I'm angry. And I don't know if you notice this, but most of the angry people think that they're angry because of something you said. Or something. Yeah, or it's justified. They're, yeah, it's justified, right? Every angry person believes that their anger is righteous and justified. They're angry with vegans. They're angry with drag queens, apparently. They're angry uh, with Democrats. They're angry with Republicans. They're angry with women. They're angry with men. Like, you know, they're angry with everybody. Um, and they're angry with themselves. Like, but the one of the first steps would be in recognising that it's not just how they feel, it's also how they think. They have angry beliefs. They have beliefs about responsibility. They have rigid, unrealistic demands that they impose on other people. They engage in selective thinking. Like, so they take other people's behaviour routinely out of context in order to make themselves even more angry about it. They're engaged in confirmation bias and overgeneralisation. So if you go to the library and a librarian spits in your eye, you'd be justifiably angry about that librarian spitting in your eye, Caden, I would say, <laughs> to some extent. But you go back the next day and it's a different librarian, and you think, I hate all librarians now. Like, they're all the same, <laughs> bloody librarians. Like, I uh, like any of them. <laughs> like so angry people love nothing more than to engage in generalization and the internet loves nothing more than to encourage people in that and and so if we wanted to counteract that we'd have to start challenging our own generalizations um and questioning our thinking uh, in a way that greek
0: philosophy like that of socrates and the stoics promotes that's a uh, that's I think that's brilliant advice for uh, for everybody to consider uh, how to how to alleviate their own feelings of anger, anxiety, depression. Uh, but just to just to live better lives, feel better about themselves, about the world that they live in. And uh, if only that message could reach everybody, uh, especially the the angry people or the depressed people that that uh, uh, aren't aware of. Their circumstances. So, I wanted to ask you about. Uh, I, I feel. I believe a core component to a lot of our how we how we see the world stems from our values. So, why are values or understanding our own values so important to our own well-being? Because our values really shape our emotions.
1: So. Um, this struck me when I was it, it, I feel like it was something that was understated in cognitive therapy, but that to some extent that's changed over the last few decades and there's more emphasis on values now and research on values. But it struck me early on, uh, I specialized in treating anxiety and particularly social anxiety disorder as it's known as social phobia, as is like one of my like my main kind of pet area. And social, people with social anxiety have what they call fear of negative evaluation. It's a technical term. They worry what other people are going to think of them in layman's terms. Uh, they feel like uh, they're in the spotlight when they're talking to, to other people. And uh, some of that is, you know, it's largely cognitive. Uh, so a lot of it involves them jumping to conclusions about what other people think about them. So, you know, people with social anxiety uh, think... Other people think I'm a phony I don't deserve to be here. How do you know they think that? You haven't asked them. It's just, you know, a conclusion that they're jumping to prematurely. They uh, make a mistake and they think uh, everyone's going to think I'm an idiot because I made that mistake. Maybe the rest of the stuff that you said was really helpful, though. So do we think someone's an idiot if they made... Fluff one line, and if you know, they also told us some things that were like a stroke of genius and you know, really useful. Like, you've got to take things in context. It's selective thinking to focus on one isolated mistake and think that taints your entire uh, presentation, like uh, the bad apple that spoils the barrel or something like that. Might, might be true, but it's usually not the case. Um, so, we, we challenge. Uh, generalisations false assumptions but uh, it struck me that none of this matters Um, unless the client believes that it's important to make a positive impression on the audience that they're speaking to which should be a value that they hold so if the client thinks these people think I'm an idiot and a phony and I don't deserve to be here but I don't care like, who cares what they think? Because uh, people with social anxiety might not feel socially anxi- anxious in certain contexts. They're quite selective about it sometimes. Sometimes it's general, sometimes it's pretty selective. So if they're talking to a bunch of two year olds and they pronounce a word wrong, they might not feel that anxious about it. Or if they're just talking to like their best buddy that they grew up with and they make a mistake, they might not feel anxious about it. Sometimes they do, sometimes they don't, right? But it might—they're probably going to feel more anxious if they're talking to the boss at work, or an expert in the field, and the someone they want to impress and fluff up. But that's the values. It's because you've decided it's important. Like so, our values are essential in shaping our emotional response. And uh, some of those values are misplaced. You know, as we mentioned earlier, uh, you know, maybe it's the things that we place uh, so much value on we're putting too much investing too much of value sometimes perhaps in external events and, and not enough on uh, our way of responding to them like we don't value wisdom enough in our culture I guess that would be another really basic thing that I would say oh let me there's another set is linked to that it kind of ties together a few things we've been talking about um, so people place too much value on external events that aren't directly under their control and not enough value on their own exercise of wisdom, which is under their voluntary control. And a reflection that, having said all the stuff I said about emotions earlier, I would say also about things like wisdom, like we don't talk about wisdom. If you pick up a book in Greek philosophy, the first thing that they'll talk about is what is wisdom? Like uh, It's one of the fundamental questions of of Greek philosophy. The internet's awash with self-improvement, self-help advice, Hey, most people, if you say so, how would you define wisdom? They just look at you blankly. The you say, would you describe yourself as a self-help junkie? And they say, yeah, like I've read hundreds, reading loads of courses. And you say, oh, like so, how would you just define what constitutes wisdom? Like, what what do you think is the, the the goal of life in your opinion? Like they say, oh, no, I've not really thought about it. you know, how what have you been thinking about? Like, <laughs> surely these are like basic. Questions, it doesn't make any sense like to be doing all the self improvement stuff, and uh, unless you've thought about what the ultimate goal is, like, well, what is, sort of person is it that you're trying to become? Like, you know, what would do you think is the the goal of self improvement? To to do self improvement, you you have to have a rough idea what you're trying to improve yourself in order to become. What's the goal of it? But if you ask people, they usually don't know, which is as Seneca said, no wind is favourable unless you know to which port you're sailing you're all over the place if you don't know what your destination or your your goal is supposed to be so one of the things I'd say to people, even with little kids is to say I've done this with small children, say "What, what do you think wisdom is? No, we never have that conversation anymore, but it was really common in ancient Greece or, you know, what is mental health? what does it look like? I don't think the goal of therapy is like you ask clients in therapy what the goal of therapy is. They usually look at you like you're crazy. Like and they'll say you're supposed to know that. And you say well, what is it you're trying to achieve from it though? Like the first thing we do in therapy usually is ask clients what the goals are. Like usually they're incredibly vague about it. Like which is odd because they're paying for it. Like it's quite expensive, uh, but they haven't really thought about usually what it is that they, they're trying to get out of it. And actually, for many people, the biggest improvement they can achieve is just clarifying what their goal is.
0: So, uh, I read a book, you're probably familiar with Mark Manson, The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck, and he wrote the, um, the sequel to that. And he outlines what good values look like and what um, unhealthy or bad values look like. So... He and he doesn't describe exactly what kind of values people should incorporate in their lives to live good lives. As you've described, as we've discussed, wisdom precedes all other uh, values or virtues. Because without wisdom, then there's like you described, a wealthy person. If, if a wealthy a person comes into wealth, comes into money and doesn't have can't exercise good judgment, they'll make poor decisions with their money and, and potentially. Uh, harm the quality of other people's lives. So uh, he doesn't describe exactly what kind of values to incorporate and uh, and as, uh, as I've learned, values can they can vary from person to person, but uh, there's, there are some values that are better than others. Uh, what in your opinion would be better values or, or some of the best that all people should incorporate? There used to be
1: a TV show in Britain called What Not To Wear. I don't know if you've ever heard of that. Not, for, so it's not that one. It's like a makeover shows. type show. And
0: okay. It,
1: be, it was called What Not To Wear. I, I used to think, it don't steal my book title, but they, I used to think a really cool title for a book would be What Not To Think. Like, so what would be bad values? That would be a good title. Yeah. Is it? <laughs> so what would be... What's a, what's a dumb thing to think? What's, like, what's a really unhealthy, like toxic way of thinking? You can make a cool book about all typical things, that cl- ways that clients in therapy have of thinking that are classic pitfall-like problems that they cause because of the roles that they have or ways of interpreting situations that are cliched. You see over and over again in therapy, and usually clients have to be helped to get over them. So there are... Other, in a sense, there are good values and bad values. I'd say, first of all, I'll say it's a cliche for people to say that everybody has different values, and I think that's misleading because actually mm. there's quite a lot of modern research on values that indicates there's far more agreement about our values than people typically assume, and that's interesting on many levels. But one of the reasons for it is that if you define values, you, you're normally going to do it at a, at the level of of moral principles and uh, at quite an abstract level. And so we all might agree that uh, justice is a good thing. Some people might not, but I would say like 95% of people or something probably, let's say, agree that we think. Sure. It's better to be just than to be unjust. Um, But we might all disagree about what that looks like in practice. Right? That's where the disagreement seeps in. Oh, we, most people might agree that courage is better than cowardice. Like it might be like a few contrarians that like I think cowardice is better. Like, but most people are going to think, you know, generally speaking, it's better to be courageous that, rather than to be a massive coward. Like, but what does it look like in practice? What's the difference when, when you actually come to live that in your life? So the difference is about the practical application, and usually there's more consensus about what the the core values are. There's been. Um, modern research on, on values weirdly is consistent with what we call the cardinal values. It's, it's very surprisingly similar to the schema that we get from Greek philosophy that says wisdom, justice, kindness, courage and self-discipline are the cardinal values. I say justice and kindness because usually there's only four. The modern research suggests that fairness and kindness are both values that most people agree on and actually those in in ancient Greek are combined in the one concept which is the kaiosune which we usually translate as justice so it's only a quirk of translation caused us to leave kindness out of the cardinal values for the Greeks it was very much part of it so what values uh, should we have wisdom I would argue is a kind of meta value because it, it depends how we define what wisdom looks like but if you think clarifying your values is important, then arguably you're already committed to the view that wisdom would consist, in part, in gaining clarity about the rest of your values. Right. So I call it a meta-value because mm. you could say that the very fact that you're interested in values clarification shows that you're already committed to a type of wisdom. That is a sort of wisdom. It's a sort of understanding about all the other values. So somebody, in your view, who's kind of fully self actualized and, and, and good mental health and resilient is maybe pretty clear about what his or her values are. That clarity is a type of wisdom and that the, there's a process of questioning that you would go through um, that's consistent It's a type of exercise of wisdom, you know, a, a type of self inquiry that would help you to gain clarity. So I would say wisdom... Or depending on how you define it, has this kind of prestigious place because it relates, among other things, to the, the clarification of other values. Um, there's a distinction that we make in modern psychology that's subtle. And again, weirdly, it's virtually identical to a distinction that's found in Greek philosophy. I, it was uh, taken for granted in Greek philosophy. Um, so it's strange that we've forgotten it now. Like, sometimes we go backwards and we forget things that everybody had figured out 2,000 years ago. And one of them is the, the distinction. We d- also, we don't have a very good English language to describe it, which is another clue that something has gone wrong. Um, so in ancient philosophy, we have a distinction between external goals and uh, what we call virtues, or arithai. um. And in modern psychology, we make virtually the same distinction. So we know that people who suffer from clinical depression, for example, will typically place more emphasis on the achievement of external goals. And in addition to that, they often set goals that are unachievable. And then they feel depressed when they fail to achieve them. Like, so often we're kind of like doing it to ourselves to some extent. We make ourselves even more depressed by making our goal to sell our best, you know, write a best-selling book and then we fail to do that and we feel depressed with the fact that we fail to do it. But it's quite an ambitious goal. Right? Maybe yeah. we should set simpler goals. But they, we know that there's another type of goal which is more about your... It's character-based. We call it an intrinsic value. And that would be fundamentally different at a kind of meta level, at a philosophical level. So external goals are about achieving things at some point in the future. And, and when they're achieved, they're achieved. So, like passing an exam. It might take me a year to do that. And then once I've passed it, I've passed it. I've achieved that goal. So the problem with goals in the future is you're sending a message to yourself that says, I will be happy when I pass that exam, but that's not going to be for another year. So in the meantime, I'm unhappy. Right is kind of in childlike language what you're saying to your brain. So by placing too much emphasis on extrinsic future goals, you 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 create a situation where you're forcing yourself into unhappiness. this, this happens a lot in clinical depression. Um, and also when you do achieve the goal, often these might be unachievable goals, or if you achieve them, you just immediately set another goal. So you have got past that exam, but now I need to get my doctorate. Like and so you allowed yourself to be happy for like five minutes and then you, you created another goal, you said, I can't be happy until I've got this, and so it's gonna take another three years. Like, but I mustn't be I ha- I'm not allowed to be happy in the meantime, I'll be happy when I get that. One day in the future. So this is toxic. Right? And the irony is a lot of self improvement advice is about goal setting. But it encourages potentially at this deeper level quite a toxic mentality. Now what the ancient philosophers and what modern evidence-based psychotherapists tend to say is there's a whole different way of running a life which consists in having character-based values, like what we call the virtues. So that would be um, like saying the most important thing to me is about exercising creativity or about having integrity. Now the difference is, if I say it's really important to me to live with integrity... I'm going to start trying to do that right now. I can start instantiating that value immediately. I could uh, send someone an email right now that, that, that involves telling them something I've been avoiding telling them. Like, and it's an ongoing process. To It happens from moment to moment. And it begins right now in, in the here and now. So you, you, the message you send to your brain is at least... Even if it's only one percent, even if it's only a small part, I can allow myself to feel a sense of fulfillment, like because I've made at least I'm making at least a small step immediately. And even if I make the decision that tomorrow I'm gonna to send the email, the fact that I've made the decision instantiates the value of integrity. And that happens immediately. So you end up creating a whole different psychological structure where you gain a sense of reward in the present moment rather than deferring it to the future. it's much healthier, it leads to greater psychological resilience Uh, so usually that would be in terms of character traits that we admire one way of identifying them is to think, well what do you hate about other people's character well, hate liars well that suggests that you value integrity, right Um, and so if you were living with integrity you'd probably admire yourself, respect yourself and probably have a sense of fulfilment, right Um, another way of defining it is in terms of roles so you could say what roles in life are most important to you well being a parent like being a son being a friend like being an author like being a teacher Um, and so you can ask yourself well what, what does it mean to you to fill those roles well what would it mean to be a good parent and could you begin acting in accord with those values immediately um, one of the things that I'll tell you right now is a little anecdote. It's very simple. In therapy, if you do this with clients, you get them to list um, all the th- the values that they cherish most uh, in terms of they admire most in other people, and that they would cherish most in, in terms of themselves. And you say to them, the next thing you say to them is like, so over the past week, how many minutes in total? or hours would you say that you've spent uh, acting in accord with the value of creativity or whatever it was that they said they wanted the life to be about. And the most common answer to that question is zero, which is pretty shocking. So you say, hi, you just told me that the most important thing to you in life is acting with integrity or acting with creativity? You've also told me over the past week you spent zero minutes doing that. That sounds weird. Like something's not right there. Like that. You just told me that's what life is about. Like the most important thing to you. But you didn't. You haven't done it at all. And usually, if that you say, then say tomorrow you were to at least spend like five minutes doing something that you would consider creative, or doing something that you would consider being a good son to your parents, like, could you think of something that would take like five minutes? And actually, if you get people even to spend five minutes a day, usually it it helps begin alleviating depression, Um, but it's such a simple observation. And again, that's a place in which self-improvement advice can sometimes be toxic, or, or what seems like good advice can be counterproductive. Because a lot of self-improvement advice is about goal-setting. And if you encourage goal-setting, it might be... There's a place for goal-setting. It is good advice, but it might be the wrong advice for people who are overly preoccupied with extrinsic values. And and it's a sense in which it's important to understand it's quite contrary to the advice that we find um, in ancient philosophy. Setting goals is a normal part of life, but that shouldn't be the primary source of value, and the main thing that we do so doing too much of that there are whole books about goal setting and whole courses that are run about it it doesn't do anything to help people with clinical depression for whom placing too much value on extrinsic goals is part of the problem that's making them depressed they need to completely turn that on its head and begin placing more value not on the outcome of their actions but on the quality or character of their actions in the here and now
0: and it seems it seems that uh, the best advice that uh, just anybody could take is if they if anyone wants to make any improvement in their life, wh- one of the best steps they could take is to find somebody to help them. Even though there is a plethora of information on yep. the internet available to you, uh, especially if you're coming from a place uh, like I, I, I've made the illustration before that if you're on this downward spiral of hardship. It's hard to turn it around, it's, and it's it's hard to it's hard to stop it. First of all, but then it and then it takes effort to make your way back up to a to a healthy and a happy state of mind. Um, well, I'll tell you very it, simple. I talked earlier about how the simple and hard therapy questions.
1: Like uh, I'll tell you another really simple one. This is therapists almost can kind of like joke about how easy it is to do this. Like so, with most clients in the first session, you would say. You know, you'll say, what's your problem? You've got anger problems, you've got anxiety problems. And you say, okay, so what, are the, what do you do at the moment to cope when you feel angry? What are your coping strategies? Like, what have you done in the past to cope? What you do right now to cope? And then you say to them, so how's that working out for you? Right? And for some weird reason, when you ask that to people, they usually look slightly awkward. Like, and they go, well, well it's not really working out that well, to be honest, And that's why I'm here. Like... And then you might say, well, maybe you should stop doing it then.
0: Like, <laughs> you
1: know, like and they're like, well, yeah, but no, it's you som- put it, it like takes, that.
0: Like, it takes somebody to point that out sometimes, too. If you are, if you, uh, if you're not aware that, yeah, so, I mean... This book told me I got to wake up early now. I got to do cold showers or cold cold water exposure, and I need to exercise sixty minutes a day. Well, right, that's not going to address an anger problem or some under other underlying issue. But in many cases, it won't. Like, there's always going to be like
1: one guy in a million that's like those cold showers really cured my anger problem, saved my life. Right. (laughs) But for most people, anger it's not not an obvious solution. It's not any more than taking antibiotics is going to fix a broken leg or something. Well, like it's the wrong um you know, it's the it's like the right solution to the wrong problem kind of thing. Like mm-hmm. yeah, coach are great. It's not it's probably not gonna fix your anger management problem. Um right. so what are you doing like you know, how's it working out for you? I still got anger problem, like um so you know, and some of the things that people do, many of the strategies that people employ are um what we call in therapy Basically, the forms of avoidance or emotional suppression, or like so, the most, the number one most popular. You know what? I, in my opinion, if you were to draw a list of 100 emotional coping strategies, people have lots of ways of coping with distress, right? I say we could draw up a list of 100. Like, I've got no shadow of doubt what the m- number one uh, strategy on that list would be, like, easily, like, avoidance number one mm. most popular coping strategy in the world. Like and like I guess what we're saying is focusing on the wrong type of solution is a subtle form of avoidance. Like it's so doing therapy on your self confidence might be a way of avoiding doing therapy on your anger. Like so it's it's all all therapy, in a sense all therapy is about avoidance. It's about tackling avoidance. You know? And identifying what is it. And that is where, yeah, that's partly where the presence of another person comes in. Even the ancient philosophers. Galen, Marcus Aurelius' his physician, has an entire book about the subject that survives today called On the Diagnosis and Cure of the Soul's Passions. And he says in it, mm. he says, he quotes Plato. He, play, he says, Plato says that love is blind. Um, and he says that no man... Uh, loves anyone as much as he loves. You know, we love ourselves more than anyone, and he says uh, for that reason, uh, love is most blind with regard to ourselves. We have biggest the biggest blind spot we have. We have a blind spot for our loved ones because we put them on a ple- pedestal. We have an even bigger blind spot caused by self-love or narcissism, or whatever you like. We have the biggest blind spot we have is is for our own flaws. Aesop, like who, who wrote the fables said, every man is born. Caden, you were born. Did you know that you were born with two sacks? Like, according to Aesop. He says, you have a big sack that hangs in front of you. And do you know what's inside it? I have no idea. Everyone else's character flaws. According to Aesop, that's what he said. And he said, you can see it everywhere you go. It's right there under your nose. Everything that's wrong with everyone else, right? And he goes, in this little sack that hangs behind your neck. Do you know what's in that? All of your uh, own character flaws. Yeah. And he goes, you can't, you can never see it. And he goes, but everyone else can see it. Like, uh. it's your blind spot. It's like the blind spot of a camera. Like, and that's what Galen says. He talks about this and he goes, for this reason, he's like, I hate to break it to you, but it's probably going to be easier, unless you're really good at mental gymnastics, and you can do this on yourself, it's probably going to be easier if you can find someone to help you. Like, because someone else, I don't know if you've noticed this, but when you're looking at your friends, it's really easy to go, see what that, everyone knows what that guy's problem is. Like, (laughs) you look at your buddies and you think, dude, it's pretty obvious where your problems lie. Like, but for some reason it's really hard because we're blind, we have blind spots, right? And that's why self-help is inherently kind of problematic. You You know, you're the, it's taking advice from the sickest man in the room. Like, you know, you like, so I, I've got these massive blind spots. How am I going to even know? Like, it's easier to, to help other people because I can look at the skin and go, like, oh, dude, obviously, you've got an anger problem. Like, or obviously, you know, you're like, um, you're you know, making generalizations in your thinking or you're jumping to conclusions about other people. Like, that's how you keep getting into these problems. Like, it's easy to fix other people's problems in a sense, in that sense, right? it's easy at least to see, usually they don't listen to you because they've got a blind spot Like, but uh, it's, it's usually easy to see what the problems are, it's incredibly easy to see what most problems every client comes into therapy you know, one of the paradoxes of, about, about psychotherapy is it's hard to help clients in psychotherapy you know, with certain client groups it's pretty hit and miss, there's like a sort of 50-50 rate, or even less than that in some cases right, with like so quite uh, troubled clients um, but most clients it's pretty within 10 minutes it's pretty clear where some of their main problems lie you know and if the world worked differently and all you had to do was to say you know what your problem is buddy like if that worked it'd be therapy would be a piece of cake like every session would be <laughs> 10 be minutes therapists. long they'd walk in the door yeah. you know and you'd be like no your problem is but you worry too much
0: just stop
1: it <laughs> like that. I think there's like a YouTube videos, a comedy sketch that's like, just stop doing that, right? But um nail in
0: the head, but yeah. It's
1: easy, but it's hard for people to, to, to take that advice to heart and to actually act on it. Um, but this is why we, we need to... That requires humility, right? And Humility is a trait that's non-existent in the modern world. Like, for some, I don't know, there's something about our culture that, that's completely... We're scared to trust other people, I think. And so no one has enough humility to ask for help, like, and that means we're screwed because we have blind spot. We can't see the bag of flaws right. that's hanging behind our neck. We only, you know, it's much easier if we trusted someone enough, like we could go and ask them and say, "Could you tell me what's in that bag that's hanging behind my neck?" And they go, "Yeah, sure." Like you know, like you you keep dating people that remind you of your mother. Oh,
0: like,
1: <laughs> like, you've, got, you've got you jump to conclu- you've got this weird prejudice against librarians, and you jump to conclusion. <laughs> uh, and you go, oh, really? Oh, okay, the guess about stop doing that. Like, and they will be like, "Yeah, sure, obviously, that was easy." Like, but we don't see it
0: because right, it's hidden from view. Um, it's hidden from us, and we are mo- more often than not don't want to hear it either. Uh, it usually requires us coming to a place. Uh, in our own life, where we want to see a change or an improvement, and uh, otherwise the the yeah. feedback is more it just seems insulting to some people. Nobody so wants people. to be wrong. Like Nobody we, wants to be wrong.
1: We have I call it the virtue of being wrong. Like the philosopher Epicurus said. Um, he said, uh, you know, most people assume that if you have a debate, it's a good idea to win it. And it's better to win it. But he said, you know, in a philosophical argument, a debate, the person that benefits the most is the person that loses the argument. He says the person that wins the argument just walks away from it the same as they were before the argument or the debate. Um, The person, the only person that changes is the one that lost it. He he learned something. Mm. So he said, "You, you know, like, the person that benefits the most is the one that loses the debate. Like that's such a radical idea. It's a strange idea. Socrates embodies that. he he talks about how he's always you know like seeking to be uh, refuted by other people, inviting. uh, But most people are defensive, and uh, they don't like to be uh, refuted. Um, Yeah, like you get used to it with practice. Like it's things like being wrong. Like, but. uh, I think there's something about our culture whereby we've lost the sense of humility and, and openness and, and everybody's suddenly an expert on climatology and epidemiology and, you know, like, I don't know, like Joe Rogan seems like the most unlikely expert on epidemiology I've ever met, but he's the person that has the reaches the biggest audience. If you ask most people, you know, what Scientific journals have you read, or what actual epidemiology? They would be like none. Where did you get your information about the pandemic from Joe Rogan or something? Like right. it's crazy, the world that we live in at the moment. Like if the if when the Martians come, you know, and look, they're going to think you guys are nuts. Like, you know, like, what? You get your medical advice from like Joe Rogan, or like you get advice <laughs> on climatology
0: from Jordan Peterson? Like, what? He's not supposed to be a psychologist. Like, what do you know about that? Like, well, it's uh, everyone. Everyone likes to hear the confirmation bias, right? They they hear the big public figures say something that they like, and then, right, like you're saying, they uh, uh, following those up with with. Science-based, evidence-based research is, it's slim to none. Slim to none. There's hardly
1: any discussion of, like, genuine... Right. And and when there is, like, it's usually people just kind of misunderstanding stuff and misquoting it. Like, Joe Rogan would be a good example of that. I'm just going to pick on him for a minute because he's a convenient... He's the most famous podcaster, right? Um, Certainly. Throughout the entire pandemic, on a regular basis he would commit the fallacy of confusing causation and correlation that any evidence-based clinician in the world or anyone that's had any training in medical research would immediately recognize as what we technically refer to as BS or, you know, like, uh, bad science, I was going to say, but I'll say bullshit. (laughs) That's welcome here. Yeah, it's pseudoscience, Right. So he will talk about a study that's correlational, and then he will draw a, like a causal conclusion from it. Like the first thing you learn when you're trained in research methods is that that's BS. Like it's you know like it's bogus, pseudoscientific nonsense. Like but the media love doing it, um, and these guys get away with it because there's no one there to question them. And on the rare occasion that there is an expert, like they don't challenge it. Or even if they do, they just carry on doing it the next week. Like So they, you know, like there's a, an objectively verifiable sense, like a straightforward... Like it might, the guy might as well be saying one plus one equals three. Basically, that was the level of the, the error that he's making over and over and over again in the show. like That's why so many like uh, experts complained about his podcast. It wasn't because of politics or anything. It was because he kept making this really basic scientific error over and over again and other, uh, other mistakes... A bit. We, so we live in a culture, though, when that that ha- there's no one questions it. Like, and it, everything gets kind of politicized. So, so, somebody does say that that's wrong. One plus one doesn't equal three. Like, people will say you're offended. Yeah, like you're you're just saying that because you don't agree with the guy's politics. And you go, no, this is <laughs> <'cause it's> wrong. <laughs> like, it's not basic arithmetic, dude. Like, or or even more fundamentally, get your science from scientists. Like, don't get it from right. podcasters, like, in politics. Politi- the problem we have as well is that politicians get involved in everything. And, like, none of them, like, really are, are, should be commenting on these things. Except in, a, in terms of policy, they shouldn't be commenting on the science. Like, because they don't understand it. Like, unless they happen to be an expert in the field as well, but like even if they were you'd not trust them cuz they're kind of biased like it's a, we what we need is more of a direct platform for genuine scientific experts and to somehow you know the way science protects itself is through the peer review process so we do, that's completely missing from the internet like so we don't you know what what happens is people will like there'll be a dozen studies on a drug and, and one of them shows that maybe it worked a little bit, but the other 11 studies show that it didn't work, right? And so if you're a researcher, you do look at a systematic review that compares all the studies. If you're a podcaster, you pick the one study that provided slender evidence for it and ignore the other 11. Like, you get a, you, you, you get one of your research assistants, go and find me a study that supports this thing. Like We've got a guest on talking about it. Like or so you get the confirmation bias and selective thinking on a massive scale. Like we have to protect ourselves against that. Like this way, the in the ancient world we had the sophists, professional orators who were trained in rhetoric and they would deliberately use these kind of manipulative, deceptive strategies. They instilled fear and anger in their audience in order to manipulate them emotionally, and they they used fallacious arguments like. Um, bogus uh, arguments to deceive their audience. And Socrates and the Stoics evolved in opposition to this movement. And they said you have to learn logic and dialectic in order to kind of cut through the BS like, that these professional orators are trying to like, hit you with. Right? But today we have exactly the same scenario really, except it's amplified by social media. So like, we have politicians and social media influencers of the sophists of the modern era and unless we take responsibility for our own thinking and learn how to spot pseudoscience, uh, how to spot fallacies and reasoning, like then we're completely vulnerable to the ho- the hogwash like that comes down this kind of like fire hose of the internet, like that's dumped on us twenty four seven. Now, basically, it wasn't like that before. When I was a kid growing up, mainly you'd watch the news for like half an hour every day. So you get like half an hour of BS, like, and then the rest of the day you're pretty much okay. You left your own devices, <laughs> like, except occasionally, you know, your mate down the pub would tell you some pseudo scientific hogwash, and you'd probably just laugh at him and tell him, you know, get like get another round in or something, or like, you know, like. <laughs> But now they're pumping it into your home on your mobile phone, like. your brain like 24-7 it's kind of escalated and yet we've kind of, we're not, we should be, we need to kind of up our game like and learn to protect ourselves more vigorously you know, but we're not we're doing the opposite, we're doing nothing to protect ourselves, you know, most of us like the you know the advice that we get doesn't really arm armors like to defend ourselves against this. I mean, like kids really need better training in scientific method in in school, so that when they graduate, they're not duped by all the bad science that we get in the media. Like just to understand the fallacy of like confusing correlation causation would be like, a really basic thing that we should teach to all kids because it's for the simple reason that it's one of the main things that pseudoscientists like in the in the media tend to use to deceive people. So at least understanding that scam. It would be like saying, you know, we need to teach everyone what pyramid marketing is, like just because it's such a common scam. Like you don't want your kids falling for it and stuff like that. Like we, we you know we need we need better protection. But in the ancient world they realized generally like critical thinking skills like are where it's at. You know, it's useful to be able to spot um you know, the ad hominem fallacy, like all oh, the internet's full of people who attack someone's personality as a way of refuting the claims that they've made. You know, like that's we call that the ad hominem fallacy, the straw man fallacy, where you falsely attribute a theory to somebody in order to discredit them, um, overgeneralizations, like making false assumptions, failure to define key terms that people are using. You know, all of these things were challenged in the ancient world. Contra- simple contradiction. It's like, all of us, like, the ancient, ancient philosophers were, were trained um, to spot these things. And I, I think if we go back in time and take Mark, someone like Marcus Aurelius or Socrates and st- sit them in front of a computer and have them, like, read Twitter for a day, I think they would just, in, like, be tearing it apart. Like, they would just think, like, they get bored after five minutes they'd think this is all just full of ad hominem fallacies and kind of other sketchy reasoning like you guys watch this stuff like they were because they were much more skilled at uh, dialectic and critical thinking than, than we are today they, they put a lot more effort into learning it I think they'd wipe the floor with us in a sense in, in that regard they understood they were trained in rhetoric as well they thought you have to understand rhetoric in order how to to know how to protect yourself against it, and so they would know like the the typical ways that people use to manipulate. They, they know like if you 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 make people angry or scared, um, then they're more likely to accept generalisations that you make. You know, and uh, the, we need to watch out for these things. Like that's the real self help. You know, like the self help that people actually need. I think. Consists in improving their logic and, and critical thinking because the the biggest threat that they face is in, in terms of you know the uh, information that we're bombarded with through social media.
0: It's kind of like the the rich person that acquires a bunch of money if they don't if they don't have if they don't exhibit wisdom or or good virtues can harm people. The same applies to people with a large influence if they don't have these higher values or are or, or, um, unaware even of how they are influencing their audience can, make, can, can, can cause a lot of problems for a lot of people. In the Stoics, there's
1: another deeper paradox in that, which is the Stoics would say, okay, so maybe wealth and health and reputation don't necessarily benefit you unless you have the wisdom to know how to use them well and if you, you're foolish and use them badly maybe they're harmful. Right. But there's another step in that argument, which is that what what if the opposites are sometimes helpful if you know how to use them well? So what if poverty might actually be the best thing that ever happened to you if like you had the wisdom. So Socrates was poor, like but he had the wisdom to know how to cope with it he learned from it and then adapted to it so he actually made it into a beneficial experience i'm not suggesting that if somebody's ground into the like about like lifelong poverty that that's a good thing but say for instance if you're at university and you're broke for a few years and you have to figure out how to make uh, you know cook for yourself and like you know mend your own clothes and stuff like that you know how to get about you have to walk instead of driving you know, and you might look back on it and think, that was actually a good thing. I benefited from that experience of, you know, being broke. And often in therapy, we find that things that people think are catastrophes are often the best thing that ever happened to them. The best example of that would be relationship breakups. Controversial thing to say, I know. But uh, at, at the same time, I think everyone realises, you look back on your life as you get older, of course you're going to think, the some of the relationships that you were in pre-ending was like the best thing that ever happened, because then you went in and met somebody else, like you know, and you probably thought that was a better relationship, like. But you wouldn't have been able to do that unless the previous one ended. But at the time, it maybe mm. seemed like it's a, you know a catastrophe. So what we seem like catastrophes often are opportunities, and and for the Stoics, one of the main things would be. That pain or deprivation or loss is actually can make us stronger if we learn from it I Mine mean, Seneca says if, if all these things that you guys consider good fortune if that was all you had it, it would probably destroy you like if you won the lottery when you were a teenager like and all you got for the rest of your life was praise from people like and you never, never had to work a day in your life like it would probably corrupt your character and make you into a horrible person <laughs> if you're not careful. Like, so it may be that setbacks and obstacles are the things that actually generate genuine personal growth. It'd be like going to the gym. It'd be like if you lay in bed all day versus, you know, if you go and take exercise and go to the gym, it's kind of hard work and it's exhausting, maybe even uncomfortable or painful. But you do it because it strengthens your body and improves your fitness. And the same is true for things that strengthen your mind and give you emotional resilience. Sometimes you have to like face up to setbacks, misfortunes, or hardships in the right way. It's
0: nutritious for our character. I think this this has been awesome discussion on uh, improving emotional resilience, a, a, a term that I, it doesn't get enough general attention, um, but uh, maybe the la- one of the largest contributors to our overall well-being through our lives um to wrap this up donald tell us about your newest book Verissimus, and um anything else that you're working on anything else that uh, you'd like to share about uh projects or or accomplishments i don't know if you're using the video but this is the book that you're talking oh there's the video yes for those watching yeah I they'll see it the they can see it's so it's named after
1: Marcus Aurelius. This is a name that he bore, it was like a cognomen, as the woman say, a, kind of, a kind of nickname, and it's a graphic novel, um, but it's, it's pretty adult. Um, kids have read it and they told me they liked it, which kind of surprised me, because it's got some pretty heavy stuff in it. We tried to make it really historically accurate, it goes two and a half years to write, which is twice as long as a normal book. Um, I traveled around Greece and, uh, went to Austria to visit the military, uh, base at Carnuntum, where release' emperor was stationed, the archaeological park there. I interviewed the head of archaeology there and the director of the, uh, the museum. And, uh, yeah, we got consulted classicists and, uh, experts in military history Why um, we looked at the reconstructed villa and took photographs and videos of it and um, other buildings to use as the you know, to have many museums took hundreds and hundreds of photographs of artefacts and museums that the our illustrator Zen and Afraga used um, so I think actually a lot of people wouldn't even realise that, it's like a huge amount of effort that went into the historical accuracy right down to, um, I spent a lot of time studying Roman poetry and letters uh, looking for things like greetings and exclamations so that we could make the dialogue more uh, authentic. Um, so, for example, I know Marcus Aurelius refers to his teacher as best of masters, like his figure of speech they would use, they'd swear um, by Zeus, but also more often swear by Hercules, like... Um, you know they'd express affection for by someone uh, for someone by calling them their honey sweet like you know so we looked for these kind of phrases and figures of speech and stuff to make try to make the dialogue more authentic and it's the story of marcus Aurelius's life it's based on the surviving historical evidence that we have um but i wanted it to be a way of people learning also about stoic philosophy so we interwove a lot of stoic philosophy into the the book and uh, I wanted it to have practical takeaways. So actually it focuses on the theme of anger which we talked a lot about today Um, and how Marcus Aurelius coped with anger so that I think people would read it and they would have some practical stuff that they could take away from it. And uh, yeah, it's a... it's kind of like I didn't realise this until after I'd started working on it. I got towards the end of the book, I thought it suddenly dawned on me. It's kind of like a prequel to Gladiator. Because the movie Gladiator has Richard Harris playing Marcus Aurelius in the first act. He dies, and, we, and so we're kind of like, We've kind of made this cinematically. Um, some graphic novels could just be little stick men talking to each other, uh, but we created us in a much more cinematic historically accurate style so it's 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 like a movie and i did the, the research for it i watched every historical uh movie and tv show that i could find that was relevant to the era even some really obscure stuff and i paused it and took screen captures and like, i looked for ways of constructing shots Um, and historical details that we could incorporate and so again, without really meaning to do it this way, we ended up creating it in a a more cinematic uh, style. So that is Verismus, the Stoic Philosophy of Marcus Aurelius and it's been out since July Um, it's doing pretty well, it was an Amazon editor's pick for best history book, which is pretty cool Wow, congratulations Um, and yeah, like it's uh, been f- like reasonably popular. Like I, I, we wrote it for adults, and I kind of told kids not to read it. I said it was PG thirteen, um, but loads of people have just said they bought it and their kids stole it because they like they thought it looked yeah. interesting.
0: Yeah. Well, that's awesome, Donald. Um, uh, one last thing I wanted to ask you about before we uh, before we wrap this up was your project. Uh, in uh, the Plato's Academy project that you're working on. I, as I was uh, studying up on your credentials, I or I learned that, um, well, I'd rather you explain the Plato's Academy in your own words. It sounds fascinating. Well, it's more famous than Coca-Cola
1: because <laughs> it's 2,300 years old. So it's been around a lot longer than Coca-Cola. And every single academy in the world is named after it. Like, So everyone's heard of the academy, like the original academy. But most people don't know where it is or there's anything still there. So in in Athens, it's now a dog park. Sometimes it's referred to. It's a public park where the locals walk their dogs and exercise in Athens. The
0: original Plato's Academy, yeah. yeah. And it's the original
1: location of the first academic institution in the history of Western Civilization. Plato was a student of Socrates, founded the school there. So just to kind of clarify what it is, like, in Greece they had these areas called the gymnasia, which I guess we would sort of call a recreational ground, it's like a park, and in it there would be running tracks, shrines, libraries, uh, a palestra, a wrestling school, even philosophical schools. It's like a 30 acre or so uh like park um basically with trees and streams and paths and people would walk and do philosophy but they'd also be training in sports and uh, stuff like that and military dances and things and there were several of them but uh, one of them was the academy it would be just outside the city walls of athens and plato went there and founded the school socrates used to go there and talk philosophy. Um, Aristotle must have gone there because he studied under Plato and the Stoics, uh, the original Stoics also went there and studied uh, philosophy in the academy and many ancient teachers not just Plato would have taught there Plato bought a house there and lived there and taught there he would walk around the park teaching philosophy and then he died um, as most people do and they (laughs) buried him there and I, I had to treble-check this. I thought it was really weird that no-one mentioned this. You know, like, with, with archaeological sites, I find it's often amazing what they don't tell you. Like, they don't tell tourists some of the most interesting stuff. So, I went to Academia Platonos, and, like, you know, there's a couple of things referring referring to Plato. They don't mention the Socrates, Aristotle over there, like or any, anything that the Stoics are, anything like that. So there's a lot of stuff they don't tell you. Um, but suddenly—I was just walking there one day, and it just, I just suddenly thought, "Hang on a minute, Plato's buried here." And I thought, "Am I imagining? I'm pretty sure he's buried here. Like, how come no one's mentioning that? It's not on a plaque or anything like that." So I went and I kind of treble and quadruple checked it. He—he was—he um, uh, was buried there. We're told under the ground. Um, so some graves would have been in like a tomb above the ground body uh, would have been in a a cask or whatever but we specifically told he was buried under the ground so um, his body probably wasn't looted Um, the place was looted several times his remains are still there um, probably disintegrated He's can't be in very good condition by now but his bones are crumbling under the ground so when you walk in that park you're walking over the remains of the greatest philosopher in western history and you're walking where he used to walk where Plato's Republic was written um, but there's so I went and I thought, how come there isn't an international conference centre here? Like people should be able to come here and, and attend lectures in philosophy and stuff like that. That would be cool. And I started mentioning it to people, and they were like, hell yeah, like that'd be awesome. And uh, and then people told me that they were interested in funding that. So I started talking to people that I know in institutions in Athens and the government. We run an event there. Last year, um, we had a letter of support from the Minister of Culture. The Minister for Development and Investment came and spoke to our audience. The U.S. Ambassador to Greece came and spoke to the audience. And the Mayor of Athens uh, came and spoke in the park to our audience. Um, So we had a lot of support from the Greek government and from institutions in Greece. And uh, we're working right now on fundraising to buy a house in the suburb. And then eventually we want to create an international conference center there where we can run events.
0: Donald, you do great work for stoicism and cognitive behavioral therapy, psychotherapy, helping people. You're, you're, uh, the, the little bit, the introduction that I have to you is amazing. I'm excited to learn more about your work to for the new release of this secret book that you're working on, and uh, I, I have listed in my bio links to your Substack newsletter and your website with all of your other work for all of the listeners to check out. Um, otherwise, thanks for thanks for joining me today in this conversation. I hope we could get to, get to do it again soon. Awesome. It's been a
1: pleasure. Thanks very much.
0: Have a great day, Donald. You